It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Man City Show is backed for the season by Ladbrokes. I sell blue The Man City Show is backed for the season by Ladbrokes. Welcome to The Man City Show. It's Nigel Rothman back in the chair. And we're here for a special one-off show. On May the 11th this year, it is going to be exactly 50 years since Manchester City won the first division title. Um, it was the first trophy they won since 1956. Of course, that was their FA Cup win against Birmingham. And the first title since 1936-7. And to discuss that and much more... I've got two amazing people, and if you saw this table, in fact, I'm going to do some photos and stick those up on social media. We are awash with city memorabilia, a particular piece of uh, memorabilia that uh, one of my guests can talk us about. Uh, we've also got programmes from the season, 1967-8, uh, and we've got books and all sorts. So to discuss that, as I say, and much more, one of my best mates, uh, Roger Reed, who worked at City twice, of course, um, the first in the 70s and the second spell in the 80s. Uh, more important than that, he was my next door neighbour but one. And some of these games we actually watched together, Rog. And in fact, the final game that we'll come on to, you were in my front room with my dad. When we were, we got the news that City had won, which nobody was expecting. So, yeah, it was great. great so fun. we'll be back to about. And secondly, Phil Goldstone, a City nut who turned a pastime into a degree in a book. Uh, Phil's got a master's degree in sports history and culture, and his dissertation was on the influence that Joe Mercer and Malcolm Allison had, not on just on City, but on football in general, um, and wrote the book Champions, uh, which is all about that amazing season between 67 and 68. Welcome, Phil, as well. Thank you very much for having me. So listen, let's. where are we going to start here? Should, can we just start with that Mercer and Allison relationship? Because they had Clough and Taylor, uh, you've had Little and Large sort of Ernie and Eric, but actually that, Phil, you kick us off, that, that, that relationship, two very, very different men, uh, and you've written about this, this was your dissertation, just help us understand why was that partnership so special? Joe came to City, Joe Mercer came to City at the invitation of um, Albert Alexander, who was the chairman. City were in 
deep trouble. A uh, couple of managers in the season before, second division. United were the team that we know United were, unfortunately. Mm. And um, Alexander, for some reason, alighted on Joe, who had been out of the game, I think for a year. He'd had a nervous breakdown at Aston Villa. But he felt that Mercer was the man, had the right, if you can say so in those days, the right image and the right background to offer City something different and to get this team back on track. But Mercer himself knew if he took the job and it, and it was very much against the, uh, the advice of his wife and his friends because everybody thought that in, with, with the state of health that he had, he would be under too much pressure. He needed a younger man, a man who, uh, uh, let's say, could work, work miracles on the pitch with the players, coaching the players. And of course, he knew of Alisson. I think he'd met Alisson on a, on a coaching course mm. at Lillishaw sometime before and was very impressed with him. Uh, Alisson, again, was out of work. He'd upset people at Plymouth Argyle. I think the chairman booted him out. Alisson was going for a job somewhere else. He got a phone call from Mercer. Uh, I think he was going for a job up in the northeast. He drove up from the south. He said he'd stop off in Manchester, have a chat with Joe. It happened, and he walked out of uh, he walked out of Main Road as the assistant manager to Joe Mercer. Uh, the chemistry seemed to work. You're quite right. Two completely different characters, different personalities. Joe wasn't a big time. Charlie Malcolm was a big time. Malcolm, as we know, the fedoras, the champagne, the cigars, the ladies in the bath at Crystal Palace. We know the story. Uh, but he was a fantastic coach. Malcolm was years ahead of his time in coaching, and I have to say, and you might disagree. Rob Roger, you might disagree, you might agree. I've been thinking about this since, since I started to talk to uh, Nigel about doing this. He was very much the, the late 60s, early 70s Pep Guardiola. Mm. Yes, very much so. What, what, very much what so. was it about that relationship? We'll come on to the coaching because there's lots been written, in fact, in, in, in Phil's book. Um, he talks about some of those uh, uh, coaching sessions in Windshaw Park in particular. But, but Roger, you, your own sort of memories of that amazing partnership of those two very different men, as we keep saying. Well, I, I just think it, it feels right. He came uh, as an ex-West Ham United player. And, of course, the thing about ex-players is that in their mind they're still players. <laughs> so he viewed the game from a player's perspective. And I think what he brought was revolutionary. You, you've only got to talk to people like Mike Summerby and Colin Bell and, and talk about... Um, the the training, the systems, the way he got everybody to the peak of fitness. It was all revolutionary in those yeah. days. It was it was light years ahead of of any other club. And I think the way Phil's right, they complemented each other because Joe Mercer was well genial Joe, that was his nickname. He, he was so easygoing, he was almost flat out. He was the perfect uh person to work with Malcolm Allison, who was so gung-ho about wanting to be successful and implement his new training ideas. The, the ironic thing for me, of course, is that I worked there when Malcolm came back in the uh, late 70s and he still had these revolutionary ideas. You know, there were well-established international players. He wanted to get rid of all them and bring the kids through so that they could be coached in the way yeah. he wanted them to play. That was Malcolm. Malcolm was just his own man. Um, can, can, the, we, can we go back, Phil, to, to, to the, that, that 
period then and you talk specifically about the training methods and it's well documented that that he brought this method in that meant that some of the players in their first training session were throwing up in within short time is, yeah. is that right is yes that, is that actually what right. just t- city, city used to train not, not just on the pitch but on the car park in front of main road in front of the main entrance mm. yeah which is quite incredible malcolm came new ideas as roger says and 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 changed it all he used to go to Withenshaw Park and he brought and, and, and train and play and they played a lot with the ball, mm. which a lot of other clubs didn't and I don't think City did before. Well, I don't think they played the ball with, with the ball on a Saturday afternoon for about 30 years. So, we, you know, I, think, I think it was an obstruction on the field as far as some of the players were concerned. But he, he, he brought in international athletes. One was, I'm, I'm sure everybody knows him, Derek Ibbotson. He brought in, there was another guy in Manchester who was, who was an international middle distance runner whose name I can't recollect. But they brought these guys in and they introduced something that Malcolm had seen abroad called Fartlek. Fartlek is a, is a, is a German term, I believe. And, it, and it's a style of training for middle distance athletes where they run at great intensity for a few hundred yards. Then they walk and then they run again. I know it sounds... To us now, very it's very basic, and how, how can this? But this this was revolutionary. There were all sorts of things he tried. He changed he changed boot styles. He was the first man to bring in from abroad these cut down boots that expose the ankle. Mm-hmm. Everyone else was still wearing the old. That's right. I'm old enough to remember the old brown leather mm-hmm. <laughs> high ankle high ankle boots that you put your dubbing on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but M- M- Malcolm brought in these boots from the continent. And you know, he, he also brought in spikes at one point. The players actually were given... They used to get indoor rubbers, as they call them, trainers, mm. and boots. But they, they actually had spikes issued to them. If you talk to the players, I'd love to know more well, about to, to that. Play, to play they, football They actually brought spikes. spikes in so that they could go running. So they did sprints not for, not for play, Not for playing. Athle- the, the athletes used to wear spikes. Not, not for playing, oh, right. okay. just so, for, for running. For so training. in training, right. they would wear spikes. Amazing. He brought in the... Sort of airtex type shirt, That's right. so that they didn't That's sweat right. as much. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was it was it was revolutionary stuff. And I guess diet also is it, nowadays. I mean, teams and squads are full think, of dietitians yeah, and nutritionists. I'm not so sure about the diet thing. As long as there was alcohol involved or champagne, Malcolm was quite happy. Whatever. <laughs> but, but you would see. I mean, you think I'm thinking now these amazing iconic black and white photos of, of City in the dressing room, and there's one or two in your book, of course, at the end of the the game at Newcastle, which I know we're going to come on to. But you know, they, they had they were drinking pints of milk. You read about the fact they'd have steak. In, in those days, it would be steak was seen as the staple diet before a game. Yeah. Uh, it's just incredible. So you think of that now and the, and the, and the way that's done. I know, you, Roger, you, you love those black and white photos you, you, you've literally got in front of you here. Yeah, yeah. The, between the two of you, you've got every single programme from that season um, laid out in the studio, which is just fantastic to see. So, so, Roger, in terms of diet, anything else to add on that? Really, anything else you remember particularly about those days and, and what they talked about? And when you talked to Colin, I know you talked to Colin about this and to Mike Summerby about this uh, over the years. I just think, you know, if you look at, uh, if you talk to the players that, that played in that team, they all loved Malcolm, absolutely without question, uh, because he was so much of a leader, so inspirational in what he did. Um, it, it, it must have been fantastic for the players to be part of something that was very different. I think that's where the comparison with Guardiola today uh, it stands, because Guardiola is such a revolutionary in the way he plays the game. I, I think he could have gone to West Bromwich Albion 
and won the league with West Bromwich Albion, Pep Guardiola, because he's that far ahead of all the other coaches in the game. And Malcolm was the same at that time. It's interesting we're talking about Malcolm. We're not talking about Joe. I'm fascinated by this. That that, that we, yeah, he, he was the assistant manager. Joe was the manager. Joe so handled the board side. Yeah, Joe and the and the PR. Joe was and, the buffer. Yeah, Malcolm was a very egotistical. Quite a, I think it's fair to say, a stroppy character. Wanted his own Malcolm way. couldn't handle boards. No, he, he, he but he wanted ex-players' view. But he wanted the influence. Mm. He wanted to have a relationship with the board. Mm. But Mercer realised. Joe realised it wouldn't work. He was the buffer. Mm. He, I, I think, during his tenure with Mercer, I think that he probably saved Allison on on many an occasion mm. from confrontation with the board and, and potentially the sack because. Once the board decided that Joe had to go and that, Merce, and, 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 and that Malcolm should be the manager and effectively run the whole football playing side, Joe became the general manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that was the beginning of the end for City. So we talk about that fantastic relationship and, and what you're saying is that we had uh, Joe Mercer who was kind of the older, more mature, more uh, level-headed um, individual who was able to manage the whole PR and the board, and and really that 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 revolution on the pitch, whether it was the diet, whether it was training, whether it was the tactics, playing with the ball, the spikes, all the other things we said, all came from Malcolm Allison. He was the the genius in those I, two. I, I think the thing with Malcolm was, that, as I said before, he he saw it from a player's perspective, and I think that's why the players bought into it very early on. And uh, it, it it was light years ahead. I mean, it, even in the late fifties and early sixties, they used to have. Uh, managers who were effectively administrators. They weren't. They weren't coaches. They weren't people who had a player's knowledge or, or, or relationship as such. So it, it, this this was really revolutionary in the in the mid sixties. Interestingly enough, we had um, what was his name as the manager? Les McDowell. Les McDowell. Yeah, yeah. And they're talking now about yeah. you know the false number nine. Mm. We had the false number nine. Yeah, Les yeah, McDowell yeah. introduced it. We, yeah, we, yeah. We, the we, we, plan. we had the Revy plan. Mm. Which was a bit before this. Which was, which was before this. I'm saying, just was, for, for our listeners, who many of them are, are, are not as experienced as the people around this table <laughs> and won't have seen that, just just briefly, just talk about... They're not as old as us, is yeah, well, exactly. Saying, don't, don't push this one, Nigel. Right, I'll speak, I, I said, speak up a bit, dear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> what did you say? So, so go on, the Revy plan. So could well, you just remind was, us we, what that was? We about. had a withdrawn centre-forward. He was, he was a striker, mm. Revy. He wore the number nine. He wore mm. the number nine, but he didn't play as... Who would we say to like a Lukaku? A he was more skilled than Lukaku anyway. He's had more skill, uh, but he played a withdrawn role and brought other people, other strikers, other forwards into the play, mm. which is what they do. Which is what this this false number nine idea is now. So yeah. none of these things we're seeing now. Mm. And Nigel's alluded to it. So, sorry, Ro- 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 Rogers alluded to it. None of this stuff in us now is is re- is as revolutionary as you might think. Malcolm even copied the Dutch. This was the idea. Malcolm. Mm. I won't say copied, he adapted what he saw coming out of Holland at the time, mm. the total football. And, and they're just so different times. Before we came on, Roger, you were talking about sort of the sky blue kit mm. um, and the, the famous, the, 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 just the shirt that we love and, and it's just such an iconic colour. And, and, and I love the front of your book, Phil, as well, where it's a black and white photo of, of Somerby's goal. I think it was the first goal in, 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 that, yeah. in that final game and, uh, and beautifully sort of coloured in the, the black and white photo with, uh, with a couple of sky blue shirts, Somerby wearing the number nine, of course, uh, that, in that particular season. Um, so, so, 
the idea that there was kind of like one kit, uh, and by the end of the season, you were just telling me your, your thoughts about how. Well, I can remember when I first started watching City in in '63, and um, of course, as the season progressed, the uh, the shirts progressively got lighter and lighter. So, but by the time you were playing games in April, May, the shirts were effectively white. You know, they were they were white with with a white neck and uh, and, and sleeves, but. Uh, yeah, that that was how it was in those days. It, it was light years away from the modern game that we have today, where you know they wear new shirts virtually every game. I think, sure. and give them away at the end of the game. Away, yeah. You couldn't afford to give them away. In no, the that's early right. Days. You had to look after them. Yeah. So, so let's let's go back to those days. And and you and I, Rog, were, were, were together. Um, I have to admit, me in tears at the end of that very last game at Main Road. Um, there are just so many memories. Uh, so you and I used to Main used to Road go together. Was my, was my church almost? Yeah, it was. It was the place I used to go in the in the school holidays and I'd hang about outside the the ground. And memorably, I can still recall being there for hours. And one day, Harry Godwin, uh, the then chief scout, came down the stairs and he he looked at me and said, "How long have you been sat there, son?" And I said, uh, "Mr. Godwin, pleased to meet you." <laughs> Thinking, "Wow, this is like meeting God." <laughs> and um, I said, I've been here a few hours, Mr. Godwin. He said, have you ever been behind the, the, these doors? And I said, no, Mr. Godwin. He said, come with me. And he took me up the stairs into the reception area and, and to see the halls of Main Road. And I have, I, I can still remember that moment. And, and that's why I bought into the idea of the Junior Blues, because that single act by Harry Godwin got me absolutely I mean I was a passionate City fan anyway but it absolutely got me in there I couldn't get it out of my blood and even now in my 60s it's so embedded in me that I can't get rid of it and just on that we'll come back to this but just I think it's fair to the listeners I mean you, you were absolutely pioneering and at the at the heart of what was going on as the as the chairman of the junior blues right for you were there as secretary and, and chairman you kind of sort of picked up that and, and ran with it. And, and I have to say, you've got to take a huge amount of credit with, with the other people. Yeah, I was going to say, that's very kind of you, but there were lots of people that, that were involved as well. But, uh, but the Junior Blues eventually became... When City went down to the third tier, I think the significant support that they got in the third tier was actually because of the work that they'd done with their junior supporters, you know, over many, many years. I didn't realise that you were involved with City to that extent, that, that you were obviously very closely involved with the development of the Junior Blue. That was a remarkable thing in its time. I don't think any other club, oh, again, right. ahead of the, no other club had, had, a, had, a, had a junior section like that. That's right. I, mean, right. I, I, th- I think that my dad paid for us, I think, in, the, in, in those days. He paid a pound and Ooh, got a birthday that's right. card and that's a right. of yeah. City memorabilia and all that stuff. Yeah. And that was you. That was, yeah, it was. Oh, amazing. It was, uh, amazing. It was ahead of the game. And, and we, we got approaches from most of the other professional clubs about... How do we set it up? What can we do to replicate, etc., etc.? And uh, and we always supported them because we thought it was in the interest of the game. But there were some of those rallies at the Free Trade Hall and so on. Oh, you had, you had thousands occasions. of kids, yeah, thousands yeah, of kids yeah, who came yeah. from all over the country, and the yeah. players turned up. Free Trade Hall and Kings Hall at Bellevue mm-hmm. when it when it was there. That was I think we got three three thousand people in there mm-hmm. with the whole of the first team squad on stage. It was. It was memorable. Yeah, they really used to was. do the the pantomime. The pantomimes the pantomime. they did, yeah. Oh, Tommy Bolton, yeah. 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 Amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, your your memories of, of, of Main Road then, Phil, because that's obviously, you know, where, where all this took place and, and, and you, you, you were there home and away literally every game for many, many seasons. Well, so, so. Roger, Roger says he started to, to watch City in... 63. 63. I saw my first game on the TV was the 1956 Cup Final. Grainy. 
Wow. To a friend's house, they had a TV, we were there for afternoon tea on a Saturday. And I don't think they watched, they were playing in the garden. I watched this football game, I knew my father, you know, I was 10, I knew my father was a City fan, I think he was there. Um, and after that I got interested, my, my, my brother, Nick Goldstone's dad. And so, so Nick who's a regular on, on the podcast yes, I know. of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my late sister, they were interested, I wasn't interested until that game. And after that, my interest grew and developed. Yes, Main Road was fantastic. I can remember Main Road. Um, I think we used to go into the main stand. We sat just to the left of the board of the uh, Director director's box. box. Main stand, posh yeah, thing. Yeah, oh, posh. my dad was posh. He was a doctor. We were posh. <laughs> season tickets, these things we had. Season tickets. Yeah, season oh, tickets. Roger and I sat the plat, plat <laughs> lane, plat lane. Plat lane. Yeah. Yeah. on the wooden benches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 posh no, no, seats no, at the no, main these stand. Posh fold-down wooden yeah, seats absolutely. that we sat on. Uh, my dad was quite friendly with a guy who was City's bank manager who used to sit sometimes close to us, sometimes in the director's box. So there was always a bit of chatter between them. Uh, and what unfolded, uh, you know, was, was, was fantastic. This was, we didn't understand other football grounds. People going to football today mm. would not understand what it was like. But uh, you watch. say that because we had that whole, that unusual situation. I always thought it was really odd. Most grounds had the standing behind the goal. Yeah, at both ends. Of course, we had the, the amazing, the wonderful, where I spent most of my youth the stood on the Kipak Street. That's where I stood with my dad for on a boxer yeah. in, uh, initially, took yeah. a box in, um, stood on it just to give myself a bit in of the a... the days when they let you take a box. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you could take anything. Yeah, yeah. How else? You, rack, you, you rattles. You rattles. Yeah. I had a wooden rattle. In fact, my wooden rattle was painted sky blue and white. And my friend here, Roger Reed, we, we did some of the fake signatures because we knew what the signatures were and we did it as if Tony Book had signed it, as if Mike Summerby <laughs> had signed it on my wooden rattle. Absolutely, it's what you did. Uh, and, and also the scoreboard end, of course, which be, became end, yeah, the yeah, North Stand. Yeah. I remember that as standing as well. Mm. These are iconic things and the memories, the memories and the smells and the sounds. Mm. It just, it lives with you forever, doesn't it? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't always sit. <laughs> in the I did stand on the Kipax. Uh, and usually when I stood on the Kipax, you were standing on your own because it was because it wasn't full of some of the games we saw some of these games pre Mercer and Allison. Mm. I think I think the lowest crowd we had before Mercer and Allison was a game against Swindon, Swindon about Swindon played eight Swindon. and a half thousand, mm. and Mark Summerby played mm. for them. Yeah. And and those days were pretty pretty yeah. grim. Yeah. So let, let's talk about that season because so we've got every single program here. Uh, we've got your book here, Phil, as well. Let, let's just talk about that season where City certainly were not favourites. They hadn't done no. particularly well the season before. Um, they didn't have any sort of big stars, big names. So, so should, let's just start talking about a, that season, the expectations of that season. There are well. a couple of publications which were brought out at the time. One called the Official Magazine of Manchester City. It's not dated. It cost two and six. <laughs> uh, the chairman writes in it... And you've got that in front of you now. So yeah, Joe Mercer writes in it. Um, and they're talking about, they're trying to promote the club. Tony Book writes in it. It's, it's, quite a, it's quite an iconic piece of literature. And then there was another one produced. That's the one. Yeah. At the end of the season called We Are the Champions. This, this one had gone up in price. City were capitalising. <laughs> that one was two and six. This one was five bob. Oh. Uh, and there, is a, there is a piece in it which I quote in the book now City will become even better by Joe says Joe Mercer and he talks about you know that, that season 
we thought we'd do okay. Malcolm and I were very happy with the team. We brought in the right players. There were some pieces to be filled in, to be filled in because remember, um, Fanny Lee didn't join us nope. till I think about a third of the way through yeah. the season. Yeah. And there was this dispute with Bolton, with Bill Ridding, the Bolton manager at the time, wouldn't let him go, banned him from playing football because he wanted to go, etc. But Joe says in this piece, we knew we were good, we knew we'd win something, 67, 68, but we didn't know what it was. We probably believed we were going to win one of the Cups. Yeah. And they went on to win the league. And they didn't start that well, did no. they? I think either. It wasn't, it wasn't a great start for the league, was it? It's not like it has no. been for City the last certainly no. this season that we're playing now. No. It was a poor start, but yeah. then we put a run of games together. Yeah. Um, can we just talk about maybe some of the players then, some of the people who influenced that game? Because I was surprised when I looked back <laughs> that, that somebody who sadly died very recently, Ken Mulhern, yeah. actually, I was, I, if you'd said to me who was the keeper... You would I, have said I would have said Harry, Harry Dowd, Dowd and maybe Alan Ogley. Alan and, Ogley. Uh, yeah. No, Kemmel Hearn, the book from Stockport. Exactly. Harry Dowd started the season, was dropped after half a dozen games. Uh, Alan, Alan Ogley played the first couple of games and then yeah. Harry Dowd played a few games yeah. and then they signed Kemmel And then they signed from, 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 from Stockport County. One of my greatest regrets is 20 years ago getting some information about an auction up in Glasgow and a late entry to the auction was Alan Ogley memorabilia, including his medal mm. for that for this season. Wow. Mm. And I worked my business around the fact that I, I had a salesman in Scotland, phoned him up, I'm coming up to see you, uh, and we're going to, uh, I'll be there, for, I'll, I'll, I'll be with you for a couple of days, but first of all, when you pick me up from the train, we've got to go to XYZ auction rooms in, uh, in Glasgow, I think it was, and I sat there, and, and eventually this Ogley memorabilia came up, and I shivered, <laughs> as they say, <laughs> because I wanted to buy his medal desperately. And the price was such... I could have done it, but I, it was not thousands that they go for now. Yeah. Several hundred pounds. And, I, and I, I couldn't bring myself to we'll, bid. We'll come on to a little bit of memory but that, that, you, that you did get. Yeah, but, but uh, that would have been fantastic to have a medal from one of the players who played uh, in that And, Rog, those got, obviously this is before substitutes, um, certainly before goalkeeper on the substitute bench now. And you've got some memories, I think, of those City goalkeepers in, in, in those times and, and what well, that was. I think the story that everybody knows is that in 63-64, Harry Dowd was in goal for City when they were playing Bury, uh, Main Road. I was and, there. Um, well, I, I, I was there behind the goal at Flat Lane. And he you broke were, his you were probably in the director's box. <laughs> no, 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 not that guy. <laughs> he broke his finger. Now, no, of course, yeah. as fans, you didn't know what had happened, but, but basically you, you were watching when he, he took the green shirt off and I think Matt Gray went in goal. Um, and Harry Dowd went upfield like they used to do in those days. And um, it, it, amazingly, he scored the goal. <laughs> so City drew one all oh, with Barry, yeah. and Harry Dowd was the goal scorer. Um, but Harry was a, was a great character because he, he was into his. But he, he didn't see himself as a goalkeeper. He saw himself as a plumber. So he was always talking <laughs> yeah. about plumbing. Yeah. You know, that, again, that's in, how it in, was in, in those fact, days. I recently was with some of the old City players, and Tony Book tells a story that at the at the time that Harry Dowd played in goal and won his medal. He was the club's odd job man, as well as the first team goalkeeper. <laughs> if ever there was a problem with the toilets or the seats, so it's like Harry. <laughs> Harry did the maintenance. Can you imagine Leroy Sarney? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Leroy, we got a bit of a plumbing problem, problem down the showers. Yeah, 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 yeah. The ladies' loo in block one twenty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> Get the Sarney down. 
Finish but training, get changed, son, get down to the loo. He never, apparently, Harry Dowd never knew who they were playing, whether they were playing at home mm. or away. Mm. They had to tell him, finish training today, Harry, be here. Tomorrow morning, Saturday at 9.30, we're playing Bury or we're playing Manchester United, or we're playing... Nottingham Forest had not got a clue. But actually, we're talking about Harry Dowd, who was clearly a great character. Yeah. It's actually Mulhern who, yeah. who actually won us the league, if you like, that yeah. season. I, I think he certainly contributed. I, th- I, th- I think the interesting thing for me, when you look back, actually, City were in still in transition. You know, one of my big heroes had played most of the previous season, Johnny Crossan. And I can still remember the team photo at the start of this season. Johnny Crossan was the captain and with the ball at his feet in the team photo. Um, and and Johnny Crossan didn't play for City, and we had we started with Alan Ogley in goal. We we'd signed George Heslop, who nobody knew anything about. He was an Everton reserve. Um, it was a team in transition. You know, we got Ken Mulhern in. It, it, if you look at it, it's almost the season that we had last season under Guardiola, where you're transitioning, moving players on, and you know which players you want. Tony Book was a key signing for us. He, he was one of the best right back. I don't understand how Tony Book played so long for Bath City and nobody at league level took a chance on well, him because Plymouth, he was such a Plymouth, good fullback. He went from Bath to Plymouth. And there's a mistake in the book. I've got to admit to it. Hold my hand up. He told me, I've got it in the book, that he came to City when he was 29. He wasn't. He was 31. I was going to say, he was yeah, in his yeah, 30s yeah. when he joined City. He told me was, I was 31. That was so, I mean, just imagine, to buy somebody who was playing at that level, who was in his 30s, who now, you know, Skip, as he's known, you still around the country. You his contribution. What, what's a contribution to the, to the club? But that yeah. season, he was just... Never missed what, a game. The only player who never missed a game. Unbelievable. Fantastic. Who, who else in that side? We, we've mentioned Mulhern, but we've mentioned Tony Book. Uh, you mentioned George Heslop. George Heslop, again, he, he was an ex-Everton reserve. He, 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 he reminded me a little bit. Do you remember when Leicester won the league? They, they played that season with Hooth as centre-back. And Hooth was such a key player for Leicester. Um, I think George Heslop was because he had, he had something to prove to everybody. Yes. Harry Catterick, particularly as Everton, he wanted to prove. He was actually in the reserves at Everton. He, he was, him, he was. Yeah. Uh, and he, he, he came in and he did a job for us. But the funny thing was, we weren't bothered if we did lose a couple of goals. I mean, the number of times that we beat teams 4-2... We weren't bothered about conceding mm. two goals because we'd always score four there or five. So, there were so many comparisons with this current team because that's yeah. what people will say about Pep. We talked about Correct. the coaching. We talked about a team in transition. <clears> it's, it's quite frightening, really. That 50 it, years <laughs> later. It's incredible. 50, 50 years, years almost to the, the day. day. Exactly. The Man City Show is backed for the season by Ladbrooks. So uh, Francis Lee, of course, um, didn't start that season. We bought him, I think, during that, this season as well. Yeah, after a dispute, he was in dispute with Bolton. He wanted to leave, uh, and they, uh, Bill Ridding, who was the manager of Bolton, actually banned him. He, he wasn't playing, and he was making statements in the press about wanting to go and how badly they were treating him. And what, what was it about Francis Lee? Because he wasn't a big, he wasn't exactly six foot tall, was he? No, he but he was exactly a goal scorer. scorer. Uh, yeah. And, and he, he, his record at Bolton, I think, stood up to, to scrutiny. And quite a few teams were obviously looking mm. at him, but he didn't want to move out of the North West. He had a business right. already. He was he a business, business there. Well, it was about that waste paper, waste paper, paper, paper yeah. Yeah. But his, his, his wife also had a, was either beauty salons or a couple of hairdressing shops. Mm. And they were 
definitely staying in the area. But it's interesting because, it, again, I go back to the, this was a transitional period for City. I think Francis Lee was signed with a view to the longer term, but I don't genuinely think that people at City were thinking they were going to win the league that season. We started with, believe it or not, the first game, I think, was against Liverpool, and we played with Chris Jones up front. Mm. And then they thought, well, hang on a minute, let's have a look at who else is available. Paul Hintz played on the right wing for a number of games. And he did quite well, actually. But there was clearly something not quite firing. They weren't firing on all cylinders in terms of goal scoring. So Francis Lee, for me, was the final piece in the jigsaw. They called him the the final piece in the jigsaw. I think that's what Malcolm thought. This is the guy I want. But of course, he brought in Colin Bell Mm. on a similar basis. He used to go to Bury. You know the stories about Malcolm at Bury in the director's box? Malcolm used to go regularly to Bury, particularly midweek, watching Bell. People were very impressed. There were scouts there from other clubs and directors. Malcolm would sit in a director's box and say, Useless. He's useless. <laughs> he can't use this foot, he can't use that foot, he never tackles back, he can't head. And he was hope waiting and he was talking Joe into talking the board into paying the money, £45,000, which was probably mm. the equivalent of Leroy Sane and £27 million in sure. those days. Sure. And eventually, he convinced Joe to go to the board and get the money. And what a signing he and was. And what a signing he I mean, he has to be, I He's, think, my best... And people talk today about the best team. Still, at the moment, yeah. this side we're talking about is the side that still, in my heart, I say is still the best City side ever. If you look at the forward line, the forward line in, in, the, in those days was Lee, Bell, Summerby, Young, Coleman. They they were the dream team. They they really were as five forwards. I mean, in that season, City scored over eighty odd goals. Seventy of them were scored by the five forwards, an average of fourteen each. Mm. Neil Young was top scorer with nineteen, which, which a lot of people don't know. They think I'm, Francis Lee was the top goal goal scorer. He wasn't. Neil Young. Neil Young was the top scorer, but but even Tony Coleman got eight goals in the season. Mm. Tony Coleman was an ordinary left winger, but. If you look at the comparison again with today, where he plays with uh, Sane and Sterling wide, you know, you had Summerby and, and, or, or Lee, as it was in those days, and, and Coleman wide, and they could attack down either flank yeah. City. Because that, that's didn't they irresistible. Because Summerby, who I always think of, and most people remember as a right winger, if He's you a like, centre forward. he played that season indeed as a centre forward. Yeah. And, and, and I think, indeed, as I think I said, wore the number nine shirt in, in most of the season. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that was. Uh, so when did that change? So. so when did he kind of, or did he did he actually tend to didn't alternate? Change. He, he just, just alternated. That's yeah. where they were very fluid. Yeah, <laughs> as, as as we now know what well. fluidity is with our currency, they were very fluid. This was revolutionary. Yeah, this was revolutionary. I think the great thing with particularly with Francis Lee and Mike Summerby is they were totally fearless. You know, I mean, you can look at some of the tackles and some of the people that yeah. they played against in those. It was a different game. It was very, very physical. Mm. But they were frightened of nothing. Mm. They were they were absolutely committed to giving one hundred percent every game, and and it was great. They were the sort of people you needed in a team that was going to win the. You league. know the famous story about Mike Summerby playing at Ellen Road. Mike Summerby sat on the ball during the game. They hated him. <laughs> Leeds United voters hated Mike Summerby. And you know, you know, I've seen Pitts out on the. He was out on the. He was out on the wing. Out on, out on a touchline. He took the ball into the corner, and just in play, and he sat down on the ball <laughs> to, to goad them, sure. to rile them. They were they were hard fellas in those days as well. well Lorimer and Hunter all, all, and all these sorts of fellas. And he used to get kicked. He kicked them back. You know, there was a sort of mutual. Respect. Well, you know the the uh, the Wembley uh, situation with the. 
Billy Bremner and Francis Lee. They were fighting on the pitch, fought all the way down the tunnel. Absolutely, sent off together and sent they, off they together. Carried, carried on. Yeah. Amazing. That was Norman Hunter, actually, not Billy Bremner. But, uh, Sorry. Yeah, 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 <laughs> Very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so, so we're talking about sort of heart. There's a couple of players we haven't mentioned, actually. We're probably not going to have time to Lucy talk about but, but Mike Doyle, oh. who, you know... Unsung, un- unsung hero, superstar. Wasn't he? Yeah. Fantastic player. Hard as, hard as nails. City, well, City through and through, cut him open in League Blue. And, of course, his grandson... Mm, is yeah. a current player yeah. uh, in the academy. Yeah. Correct. That would yeah. be fantastic. So, and, and Glyn Pardo as well? Glyn, Glyn uh, I, I was lucky enough to, to be able to get to know one or two of these people. What a lovely guy, Glyn Pardo. Tony Book, lovely guy. Mike Doyle I knew very, very well. Fantastic. But as, as you rightly say, Phil, he, he loved City uh, to, to a passion. But I think Joe Mercer and Malcolm Allison were quite lucky, actually, because they inherited quite a lot of young City players who'd come through the ranks like Alan Oakes and, and Mike Doyle and Glyn Pardo oh, and people yeah. like that Neil Young another and he was able to mould them into these fantastic players but he was lucky to have inherited them because they'd got that experience they'd had that blooding in the sort of early 60s and they were experienced pros when it came to this particular season, you know. And they were huge, hugely contributing to uh, the success of the team. There's one other name uh, that we haven't mentioned, which is incredible, really, when you think of it, who actually is the record uh, appearances man for City. And his, na- his name's never been, not been mentioned yet. Wait, isn't that interesting? Why, why have we not mentioned him? Was he going to not one of those? Not, uh, he, was, he was one of those stalwarts, our record appearances guy, cousin of Glyn Pardo. Um, what, there are players throughout our history mm. First Division Premier League who are fantastic players who don't get mentioned as superstars don't get international caps we had another one at the club Ken Barnes mm. Ken Barnes was always spoken of in the press as the greatest uncapped player in English football Fantastic wing half in those days. Mm. No one ever talk, talks in glowing terms about Ken Barnes. I can't understand why. No one speaks, as you've already said, Nigel, in glowing terms about Alan Oakes. But the man was a colossus. I can always remember that um, Roddy Marsh once described Alan Oakes. He, he, he said, uh, if, if you remember Alan, um, he used to wear these big shin pads, which in those days not every player uh, could, could wear shin pads. They used to play without shin pads. And um, Rodney Marsh said that Alan Oakes, he always looks like he's got telephone directories down his socks. <laughs> um, but Alan's contribution, he was a fantastic player. He, he was so underrated, so quiet as a person as well, but he just got on with it. But his contribution just cannot be underestimated. He, his contribution to the success of City in the 60s was uh, immeasurable. Can I just go back to one player we've already talked about, but there is a piece of kit that I'm now touching and I feel very honoured and, and it's very special um, that, that Phil, you brought along here. Um, this is very, very special. Just talk us through what this bit of bit of memorabilia is on the table here. This piece of memorabilia is an, is an England cap for a game against West Germany in June 1968. So we're talking about the season we're talking yeah, about here. This, this is, is Colin Bell's second international cap which I purchased for a price which I won't, say, I won't divulge. <laughs> Just in my case wife that. might be hearing. <laughs> uh, at an auction. Um, I subscribe to a sort of auction company's monthly catalogue. They send it to me and I always look for city stuff. I bought other stuff through this. 
city, old city newspaper reports from the 1920s and 30s. I've got all sorts of stuff. But this came up and I could not believe mm. that this was for auction. Uh, and um, I called them and said, look, I can't get down there. It was down in the south. Uh, but I want a bid, so they gave me a number, and they will we'll, we'll call you when the item comes up. I said, "Well, you better not forget." And I, I was actually so desperate. I think I phoned them about six times before that. Mister Goldstone, calm down, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> we've got your number. We've got your number. Uh, and uh, there were only a couple of a couple of bidders because it's. I mean, it's a particularly okay if, you, if you're into England. I know, I know I know there are collectors of England memorabilia sure. who would want an England cap and World Cup medals and that sort of thing. I wanted Colin, he, my hero, my footballing hero, and I wanted that cap desperately. I told you, I missed out on the Ogley uh, mm. First Division Championship medal for the season that I wrote about. I had to have this cap. And you and didn't I, miss out on it. It's and an, and it's I, when it arrived, I show it to people. I'm sure. I even show it to people. I do quite a bit of uh, stuff with people overseas and on Skype, and I keep bringing out the <laughs> Colin. What's this, Phil? An England cap? Who's yeah. Who? Colin who? <laughs> but it, to me, it's just it's just an iconic piece of memory. And I know, Roger, you, you're into your shirts as well. And over the years, because you've been work, you worked at City, you've been involved in football your whole working life. Um, you've got a few shirts over the years as well. It's yeah, a particular I've, favour. You brought a few along as well to the I, studio I, I've, today. I've got a few, uh, a few to show you. Yeah, I've, I've, I've just been very lucky to pick them up from different people, either that I've known or from from the club itself. And uh, yeah, I, I always say to to my partner here that if ever I uh, depart this mortal coil, you know, sell the shirts because there's a lot of money's worth there. <laughs> so that's my legacy for it. <laughs> and something you and I over the years, I say, we, we live next door but one to each other. We were the same primary school together. We know each other pretty much all our lives, travelled home and away with City. Mm. And we've always talked about the kit and it's something we've always enjoyed talking about and discussing. And, and I think we probably both share the fact that that red and black striped kit, with, again, you've got Colin Bell's signature to Roger, a special message from Colin Bell to yeah. you on, on one of those shirts. That iconic Red and black stripe. Am I right in thinking Alison saw this AC Milan? Saw, is that, is, Milan, is that, yeah. is that yeah, a true yeah. story? Is that yeah, just... yeah? He went. He went to. Uh, I, I don't know whether he was scouting or just looking at coaching, but the, you know that was how he was. He was looking at the way international teams were playing and, and and teamed in other countries. And he went to Milan and saw saw the Milan kit. And it's funny because the game he saw Milan were away. So they actually wore black shorts instead of white shorts. So he came back with this idea of red and black striped shirts and black shorts. And mm. it, as you say, it became iconic. And I can remember we played, I think later in, in probably in the early 70s, around that time, we played Bologna. And Bologna wore this strip of white with a sash across the I'm going to talk about the sash, yeah. <laughs> and again, Malcolm thought, wow, that looks good. I'd love our team to play in this sash. And of course, he introduced the white strip with the blue and red uh, diagonal sash and like then, Peru's kit and then when he went to Crystal Palace he, he introduced, he introduced it, there, it well. there as well because he loved the kit so much yeah, because yeah, before that of course it was Maroon as our second kit maroon, and yeah, I'm really yeah. pleased to see that Maroon is sort of coming back in True Berry as they call it True Berry they call it True Berry it's not is it it's called they can't true call it Maroon yeah. anymore it's Maroon True Berry get out of here yeah listen we've took, let's get back to these games and there's one we talk, <clears> we've talked about so many iconic images here and we will obviously going to finish on, on the Newcastle game that, that won the league uh, but actually there's one other game that probably is more uh, famous I guess because of the weather conditions uh, and you talked about the boots and you hear that actually City wore slightly adapted boots they, they for that filed, game they filed the studs down didn't they? Uh, and I'm sure most people know I'm sorry, of course it's the famous ballet on ice which was the game against Spurs both at that game yes yeah. so, so, so that's amazing to have two people here were, were at that game just, just Phil talk, talk us through your should have been this day it would never have been played of course no chance it? 
I don't, actually don't know because I, I, I was living in Lee. My family lived in Lee, which is about, you know, 15, yeah, 18 yeah. miles. Yeah. So we would travel. Dave after, Wallace lives in Lee. After, yes, he does. Mm-hmm. Dave does. Yeah. After, uh, you know, after lunch on Saturday, we'd, we'd, we'd drive to, uh, to Main Road. How we got there, I don't know. I can't, I can't recall the journey. Uh, not, and, uh, you know, um, miserable, miserable day, freezing. Freezing, what the pitch, game, yeah. I think you're right. Unplayable today, in today's terms, no chance outside the ground. The clubs didn't care about what conditions were like outside the ground. Like, you know, you had that recent game at Derby and uh, against Cardiff postponed because outside the ground, the game, the pitch was playable, but outside wasn't. Uh, health and safety approved for the spectators. They didn't care in those days. Somehow we got in, we played. I think we went one goal down. I think Greaves scored. Was it That's Greaves right. they, scored? Yeah, they, they scored the first goal and Greaves was the score. And then we played football that on a, on, a, on, a, on a normal pitch, on a good pitch, on one of today's pitches, would be classed as some of the greatest football ever seen. Mm-hmm. It was a phenomenal performance. And I think Ballet on Ice, was that the phrase yeah, called by John Watson? Yeah, was it Watson? Yeah, it was, because it was on Match of the Day. Well, it was on Match of the Day. Yeah. I think it was one of, the few, probably one of the few games that was played that I day. I think it was. Yeah. Absolutely unbelievable football. Your memories, Rog, from, from that day? Yeah, just, uh, I, I don't genuinely think that any City fan was thinking that City would win the league that season. I, I, even right through to the last game of the season, I don't think anyone was really thinking. Can that I just say about that? League. On that last day, depending on how... Results went, four teams could have won the title. City, United, Liverpool and Leeds United. No, Leeds United had played midweek and lost and I think that kept them, that, that put them out. Well, let's come back to that. Yeah. I'm just keen to, to just pick up on what you were saying, Roger, about, well, about, it, about I think it, I think the fact that it was on BBC Match of the Day, yeah. um, it was the first inkling that people had that City might be a, a reasonable team here. Um, you know, Malcolm had been saying we've got a good side together, but they were in transition. I don't genuinely think anyone, even having beaten Tottenham, because Tottenham, I mean, they, they had Mackay and Greaves and, you know, all the old stalwarts yeah. that they had. They were a good side, Tottenham. So to beat them so easily that day in, in the Bally on, on Ice game was was a real step forward for City. And I think that probably gave the players a little bit of belief mm. that maybe they could go That was the away. momentum. That, 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 they that went was, on a good run, I yeah, think, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. That. That yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you look at the turn of the year, we, we had a bad Christmas. Colin Bell got an injury um, in, uh, towards the end of December. I think it was a cartilage, actually, if I remember rightly. But he was out for a few games. And they, they used to have these double headers over Christmas. So we played West Bromwich Albion at home and away and lost both games. Mm. And I think at that point, City fans were thinking, yeah, well, it, it was a dream. It was a pipe dream, but never mind. You know, at least it's been a good season. But then we went on a run and of, of the games since the turn of the year, City won 13 of the 18 league fixtures, which was a fantastic run. And, and that was enough to get them to, to win the league. And it got to, as, as you were saying, Phil, it got to that situation... Um, in May, uh, at the end of the season, where Stretford were playing at home to Sunderland and City were away at Newcastle at St James's Park. And I, I do remember the fact that, of course, no segregation in those days and almost the, the, the whole ground was, was awash a with, with, with City fans. If you read some of the reports from the time, they talked about 20,000 City mm. supporters mm. going to Newcastle. Yeah. And I think everyone got into the ground. <laughs> but, but by the look of the photographs. Yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable. And the interesting thing is, I think you mentioned it when we were talking before, not on Match of the Day, but there is, and I have a copy, an ITV News recording of the game. Really? Right. And I've always said, and I've always thought, 
no one expected City to win. You mentioned it. No one expected City to beat Newcastle, and no one expected Sunderland to beat United. Yeah. That was That's impossible. Awesome. Because just to again to remind people, going into that game, they were equal on points. I think at the top was mm. that right? So yeah. before that game, City just had to beat United's. Oh, I've said it. Stratford's uh, <laughs> result. That Wash day. your mouth out. I will. And my father will kill me. Uh, <laughs> so I blame him for this. Uh, he never says the name either. Uh, so, so we got a situation where they they just had to to beat their their performance uh, and to, to 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 win the league. And of course, as you say, Stratford lost and and City won. And no one expected it. We weren't on match of the day, but there's an ITV ITV cameras were there for the news, their national news. And I thought there was no record of this game, no film record of this game. And three or four years ago, a friend of mine said. I understand you're interested in, in some film of the uh, final game against Newcastle of the 60s, 70s. I said, that doesn't, doesn't exist, what you're talking about. It wasn't, it wasn't an auction in Scotland, you got it. No, it wasn't an auction in Scotland. No, I got this, this, he sent it to me. He said, I've got a copy of the ITV film Fantastic. for the late night news. But, but you were there, presumably. You, you no, were, I wasn't. I was at home. I'd come back from um, work. I worked down south. And right. We lived in Lee in the north, and you northerners will know where Lee is. Um, and we were at home. Right. My dad, my brother, myself, sister, mother. And I can actually remember jumping onto the dining room table when the game was on the radio. I think must have heard it on the radio. It must have been on the radio. Well, I, the good news is that I know where Roger Reed was on that day. And were, you, were, were you were there? Where, I was with Nigel in his front room when the news came through <laughs> oh, on the BBC. Yeah. But, uh, exactly. but the ironic thing about that day was that um, because everyone was expecting United to win the, uh, the, the league, they actually, and they, of course, in those days, they only had one championship trophy. The championship trophy was in a box at Old Trafford, yeah. ready to be presented after the game. And of course, it wasn't at St. James's Park. So City had to arrange a friendly game, I think three days later at Main Road, when the trophy was actually presented. And they had to, I've heard stories that they actually had to force United to bring over the trophy. <laughs> they wouldn't let them have it. What? what was lovely was that Matt Busby <laughs> and Joe Mercer were very close friends yeah. and Matt Busby made a point at the end of the game of saying I'd like to congratulate City and, and congratulate Joe Mercer in particular on winning the Yeah, league. they were good pals. And that was, that was a real gentlemanly thing to do. And what about the game itself? So, so just talk us through sort of uh, how it went. You've obviously watched it a few times yeah, on, on end, your right. End-to-end, great football from both teams. Nerve-tingling. Yeah. Nerve-tingling. Yeah. Yeah, I think we scored first. No, they scored first. They scored first, or Mike Mike Sunby scored first. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. Uh, and, and, and it went two two, and it went two two, four two, and they got a goal. And then they got a late goal. Yeah, but it was. It, I mean, we we used the phrase a city fans typical city. It was typical city, yeah. wasn't it? Because it wasn't winning the game four nil, and oh yeah, we've won the league. It was hearty mouth stuff, really, as as we went through and classic for the season because they scored four but conceded three <laughs> and I suppose that the thing is that, that that was kind of the start of something very special that, that's what I remember that was the start of the FA Cup in 69 the European Cup Winners Cup the League Cup you know, we, we then started to dominate England Tony Hawk has hold, held up more trophies in a three year period than any other captain of an English First Division or Premier League team mm. Champion, second division championship consolidated into the into the, into the first division, won the championship, FA Cup, League Cup, Cup Winners Cup, and then giving the moron an opportunity to be quoted from 
we won that great trophy, the Charity Shield, as well. I think mm. twice. Mm. Exactly. So, looking back at this sort of amazing team and this amazing uh, year, it's 50 years ago almost to the day. So, if you're, before we finish then, so if you're, your final memories, really, in terms of that, that squad, that, the ground, the kit. We've talked about so many things, the management team, the supportive board that we have, the, the fans. There's just so many positive images and memories that we've got. So you, your opportunity, the two of you, just to finally just, just reflect and your, and your final memories on, on what's been a fantastic era for City. It was a, a, a fantastic era. I think, I think the great thing for me was that I, I was brought up as a City fan by, by my dad, God bless him. And um, he said to me about the difficulties that City had had, uh, you know, in the sort of um, early 60s, particularly when they got relegation. And I don't really think that any true City fan was expecting the success they were going to get that, as you say, really was launched by winning the league in 67, 68. Um, so it was it was a fantastic era. I was I was eleven when we won the league, and uh, it, it was just fantastic as an eleven year old to to not be in the shadow of any other club, least of all the other club from uh, not so far away. Um, so great times. Yeah, yeah I I'm, I echo what you said earlier on about the parallels between now and then. Mm. Different era I know now with lots of money and new ground, etc. But and, and, and we are something of a Cinderella club. We're, 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 we have been everybody's second club because cities, despite what some people say, we have got a fantastic history, uh, but not in terms of winning huge numbers of trophies. It's just what this club mm-hmm. represents to people. Back in the day of the championship and the Mercer Allison era, similar things were happening then as to happening now, but not, not driven by the same things. You know, we, we had people who owned the club, the Alexander family, who were dedicated city people. They brought in, not a superstar, Guardiola, they brought in Joe Mercer, who'd been out of the game for a year, mm. a sick man. Mm. Mm. He brought in, maybe the Guardiola equivalent in those days, Malcolm Allison, also be out of the game, had been pitched out of Plymouth Argyle. But they put something together. We didn't know these players. Who was, who was this guy, Summerby, from Swindon Town? You know, who was, who was George Heslop? You know, yeah, we might have heard a bit about Franny Lee, a bit of a troublemaker at Bolton. Uh, who was Tony Coleman? Doncaster Rovers, miscreant, troublemaker. Malcolm wanted him, wore Joe down, eventually convinced the board to pay the money, made him into a super footballer. And he, they welded it all together, into, as, as, as is happening now, into a fantastic football team that was consistent for three, four, five years. And it was, as uh, we say, it was a fantastic time to be a City fan. Since then, of course, we had 45 years of <laughs> absolutely now. But, you know, that's why you're a football fan. You don't, uh, your loyalties are your loyalties, as we've said. If your dad takes you. And that's what you believe in. Roger, Phil talked to, talked, and we talked about a lot, actually, these parallels. So, so the question we're asked a lot as City fans, and particularly uh, us of a certain age mm-hmm. around this particular table in this particular studio, is the whole situation of parallels and which is the better side. I know it's impossible. We talk, and Phil said we've talked about different eras, we've talked about different circumstances. You can't really compare. But I'm going to ask the question anyway. So if you had to compare those two mm-hmm. and come up and say which was the better team, 
Mm. Are you going 67, 68, or are you going to go today's team? Which is the better team? It's very hard to say one's better than the other. I think the great thing for me, I've always wanted my Manchester City to play with an attacking verve uh, that really grinds people down, wears people out, because we're constantly attacking teams, and, and that's what we have now under Guardiola. It's a very different game. I mean, even the pitches now, you know, they've got grass on them now. They didn't have grass on them in those days. <laughs> You know, you played on a, on a mud bath, which dried out towards April and May, yeah. uh, and it ended up being a dust bowl. You know, because there was hardly any grass on it. But no, it was fantastic that area. That was my favourite City team. But this new team are playing in a very similar way with wide players, with people regularly scoring goals. As I said before, the five forwards of that team scored seventy odd goals between them. That's that's an incredible achievement. Um, but we 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 just we weren't bothered if we lo- if we lost a goal or went one goal down because we knew we'd score two three four. Um, fantastic. So, so, so Phil Rogers failing to answer the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, 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 and I would I would, I would fail also. <laughs> he just said something about if we went one down, we, we knew we'd score a goal. We went to watch this team, and in that particular season, that sixty seven sixty eight, and we did not go believing that it's typical City and we're going to lose. We knew we were going to win, mm. and it was by how many? Mm. Mm. Uh, great players in both areas, eras, great teams. Um, interesting enough, Rogers <clears> made <throat> a comment, you know, we, City fans, we like attacking football. When we've won the title, it's always been playing this style. Mm. We've always scored mm. lots of goals. Mm. We've conceded a few, although at the moment we're not, we're not conceding yeah, many. Yeah, yeah. We, but we score lots of goals, and that's that's the key. That's what Manchester City supporters love: great players, good players. Don't have to be superstars; just have to be people with city heart and blue blood in their veins. Listen, I've had the time of my life. I can't tell you. We've spent <laughs> well, an hour sitting here talking about our team, and just it's fifty years almost to the day, May the eleventh. 50 years ago, and May the 11th, 2018, will be 50 years since Manchester City won the first division title at Newcastle United. A huge thanks, huge thanks to my two guests, to Phil Goldstone and to Roger Reed. This is Nigel Rothband saying thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you all very soon. This is a Playback Media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit playbackmedia.co.uk. The Man City Show is backed for the season by Ladbrooks. If you're a large organisation involved in managing, purchasing or making decisions on software licences, you need Livingston. Livingston provides the technology and a large team of experts to help you understand what software is installed on your network, who is using it and whether you purchase the right number of software licences to legally use it. This information can help you make smart business decisions when it comes to renegotiating software licensing agreements with large software publishers like Microsoft, Oracle, IBM and others and when budgeting for software spend. To reduce the cost and risk of managing your software licenses, speak to Livingston today about our managed services. Over 50 multinationals across the world trust Livingston to manage their software licenses. Visit livingston-tech.com for more information. What's your thoughts on Fulham? Chances are you don't think about them too much, but nice away day by the river, used to have a Michael Jackson statue, and once did quite well under Roy Hodgson. 
But that's probably about it, because chances are you're not a Fulham fan. However, if you do know someone that supports Fulham, maybe a mate or a colleague at work, please tell them about the Fulhamish podcast that I host every week looking at each Fulham game as it comes and goes, with a nice bit of quirkiness and humour along the way too. You can find Fulhamish at fulhamish.co.uk and we're also available on all podcast platforms including iTunes, Acast and playbackmedia.co.uk. That's Fulhamish, your weekly independent Fulham FC podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.